10. In chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, we have Saul anointed king. We have the confirmatory signs, his inauguration as king, and the twofold response to his kingdom. Hear now the word of Almighty God, inspired by his spirit, profitable for us, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses, and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor. And there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. And thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou shalt do as occasion serve thee. For God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned back, turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass, when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servants, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses. And when he saw that, there was, that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah, 
and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all kingdoms, and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversaries and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people? And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word. 1 Samuel chapter 10. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and in the exposition to follow. Verses 1 through 13 of this chapter, we have Saul's anointing as king with confirmatory signs foretold and executed. Then it says in verse 1, Samuel took a vial of oil, anointing oil. This is the same root word in Hebrew as our word Messiah or Christ, which means one anointed with oil as well. Now, David was anointed, we will see, with a horn, what was Saul anointed with? A vial, and very likely of glass or of some perishable substance versus a horn, which is more durable. Saul's kingdom would be easily broken. It says that Samuel, who now is going to have his position as chief magistrate taken from him, he kisses him. He shows him honor and obedience. Remember in Psalm 2, kings of the earth are told to do what? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Show your obedience, show your loyalty, show your submission. So Samuel here, he's not jealous of his own interests, but rather for the kingdom of God to advance. Samuel's a good example. And then he says to Saul, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Notice, here's the cause for the holy sign because of the things they signify. Why is it that he was anointed with oil? Because God hath anointed thee to be captain. 
not me anointing you with oil, but God by his special action has anointed you to be captain over his people. I note then this doctrine that holy signs are a visible word of God. Do you remember from chapter 9 at the end? What did Samuel tell Saul? Stand still a while that I may show thee what? The sign of your kingdom? The oil upon your head? No, he says, that I may show thee the word of God. What then is the oil poured out upon his head but the word of God? The word of God in its visible manifestation, the word of God in sacramental or holy signs. This anointing was the word of God in symbolic form. And we call the word of God the audible word when we read, when the word is preached faithfully according to scripture, that is an audible word of God. Then we call the visible or tangible word of God, bread and wine or the waters of baptism, or in this case, the oil poured out. It was a sign of something that God had anointed him to be king. And the sign and the thing signified together are what make a sacrament. Let us then not stop at mere physical signs, but ascend or climb through those signs to the thing that they signify. Not contented with the mere external word bouncing off the ear or poured upon the head or consumed in the mouth, but to go to the word, the thing within the veil, the thing which they point to. Then we have the confirmatory signs in verses 2 through 6 to assure Saul's faith in God's word concerning his kingdom. This is the audible word. He's going to give him signs to confirm him in his belief that he shall be king. Three men would meet him in verse 3 going up to Bethel. Now Bethel is a local place, but it can also mean the house of God. It could mean the place where the ark was, it could mean the place where the tabernacle was, or it could mean the place where the prophets were or the place Bethel itself. I do not know which, but they're going there nonetheless. One carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a bottle of wine, evidently for sacrifice. So many people believe they're going then to the ark. That's where sacrifice would have been offered. They have the kids to slay, they have the meat for a meat offering, and they have a wine for a drink offering to pour out before the Lord. They will salute thee, he says in verse 4 to Saul. In other words, in Hebrew, this means they will inquire into your peace. They won't just say, hi, how's it going? They're actually going to want to know about you and your circumstances and whether it is well with you. They will take a keen interest in you. They will be moved with generosity towards you. They will give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. Now this is very strange. Men going up to the house of God with things that they will offer to God, why would they give that away? It's very odd, isn't it? They would rather take them up and offer them to the Lord as their intention was. Matthew Poole notes, the more strange the present was, the more fit it was for a sign of God's extraordinary providence in Saul's affair. That's what God is doing. He's confirming to Saul that this is his choice, this is his doing, and that he will confirm it again and again and again. 
till Saul is king. Then he tells him he will go to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. Now this could be, again, kiriath Jearim. The garrison of the Philistines can mean a building where the soldiers would be, or it can be the soldiers there themselves. If it's a building, it might be left from when the Philistines inhabited the land. If it's soldiers, this is very remarkable. The Philistine soldiers, and we will see this later in the life of David, God willing, the Philistine soldiers will not countenance the enemy armies, but they will allow for the prophets. They will allow for the men of God to have their place right by their garrison. That's rather remarkable. They had enough respect even for the religion they did not agree with, these Philistines did. So here, there will be prophets by the garrison of the Philistines in what is named the Hill of God. Josephus thinks this is Gibeah in Benjamin, where Saul was from. I'm not convinced that that's the case, but in any case, that was his opinion. These prophets will have a psaltery, a tabret, a pipe, a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. The Westminster Annotations note that they used to play upon these when by singing of psalms and spiritual songs they praised God to raise up their spirits and make them more cheerful in religious duties. Do you know that women prophesy in this manner? Women, when they speak forth the words of God, when they sing the psalms, they are prophesying. That's how they were prophesying. By playing of instruments, by singing forth the praise of God, that was the prophesying they did. And we have that same delightful duty. We are commanded by God not to use instruments as they used, but Paul says to make melody with our hearts we are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. Then notice, when Saul comes to the prophets, what will happen to him? Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. Now this word means to rush or to suddenly take possession of someone. God will take possession of you, Saul. Immediately, suddenly, it will come upon you. The Spirit of God himself the same way that the Spirit of God came upon Samson in Judges 14, verse 6. Remember when he tore that kid like it was just a worthless piece of cloth? He just tore that lamb right up. So the Spirit of God will come forth and overpower Saul. I notice that gifting precedes government. If you are in government, and by government we don't mean civil government, in fact, Noah Webster in his dictionary says, when he defines government, he says, men are apt to neglect the government of their passions. So you have government over yourself. But if you have government over others, pray that God will bless you with the gifts necessary to govern others. This is what Saul needed. He needed the Spirit of God to give him gifts so that he could govern the people of God. God tells him, that he would prophesy with those prophets and he would be turned into another man. In other words, his way of thinking, his way of speaking, his way of choosing. These common operations of the Spirit, God will turn him as if he were someone else. Thou shalt receive a bold, courageous, wise, and understanding heart capable for government 
and for managing warlike affairs as it becomes a king to have, thus the Dutch annotations. This is not regeneration. And if it was necessary for God's spirit to come upon a mere civil ruler, how much more to see the kingdom of God? We must have the spirit of God given to us before we can do those spiritual operations of serving the Lord. God gave him, in verse 9, a new heart, another heart. God turned, God transformed, God overthrew, as this Hebrew word may mean, the heart of Saul. Jerome uses for the heart, the core in Latin, the inner man, the mind, the will, the affections. God makes new creatures Man does not. And if this is true in civil government, much more in the spiritual things of the kingdom of God. God gives new hearts. God makes new men. Do you have a new heart? Are you a new creature? Bless the God of all grace. Rejoice in his great mercy. He has worked on our behalf in Christ, and he works in us by his Holy Spirit. Then we have God's word, verses 9 through 13, by Samuel confirmed to Saul. All these signs came to pass that day. The Hebrew word is uf, the same word used of circumcision. God gave a sign to confirm him in his kingdom. These pointed to the substance of God's promise that he would be king. And so Saul prophesied among the prophets one of the confirmatory signs. As an ordinary prophet or spokesman on God's behalf. That's what a prophet does. He shows forth the word of God. God puts a burden upon him and he delivers the burden by speaking it forth or in this case by singing it forth. Those that knew Saul beforehand asked this question. They said, what is this that has come unto the son of Kish? They were astonished, amazed. They could not believe their eyes. Isn't this this kid who used to go around searching for his father's asses? Now he's prophesying? They were amazed at this. And one of the same place answered and said, but who is their father? Now the word for answered here, nobody really wanted to hear an answer. The question is more rhetorical in nature to make a point. But here one of the prophets answers. This word means to speak from judgment or reason. This was a thoughtful response to squelch the proverbial objection. And the question is this, who is their father? Right? Who's the father of the rest of these prophets? In other words, where did they receive their gifts? Is it from a different source than Saul? Are you amazed that Saul can prophesy? Well, what about the rest of the prophets? Who gave them their gifts? You see the wisdom of this question. All of them had their gifts from where? From God himself. So if God decided to give Saul the gift, who are we to complain about that? Who is their father? The same one is Saul's father. Saul then returns to his father's house. He is publicly elected and inaugurated in verses 14 through 25. 14 
through 16, we have Saul's interview with his uncle. He conceals the matter of the kingdom. He told him not when his uncle asked him about, what did he say to you? What did Samuel say? And this is possibly commendable. Remember that Samuel spoke to Saul on the rooftop, and he spoke to him in secret, and when he went to the end of the city, he said, send your servant on and I will speak to you the words of God. Everything's been done in secret or in private to this point in time. So it's to his commendation that Saul continues in secrecy. He doesn't appear to be promoting himself. This seems to be a humility, but again, as we shall see, this is merely temporary. Once he's put into the public office, this weak shell of virtue will be cracked and destroyed, and Saul will be turned into yet another man, as we shall see. Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah. Do you remember Mizpah in chapter 7, verse 5? This was the place of national repentance. We also saw that the Israelites in the days of Jephthah, in their times of repentance, they gathered at Mizpah. When all Israel gathered to hear the Levites' concubines case, Judges 20, verse 1, where were they? Mizpah, a place of revival, a place of reformation, a place of repentance, a place of national covenanting. Verse 18, Samuel repeats to them the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, why does he do this? It's very important to understand exactly what he's doing. When all of God's righteousness is laid out, and then the sins of men are laid out, what does that do? It shows that God is to be justified and man is to be condemned, such that if man wants to justify himself, what must he do? He must condemn God. And you can't do that. You cannot condemn God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And he is judge. And if you want to condemn him, you'll still lose. So here, here's this. What has God done for you as a people? Well, he says, look at it, verse 18. I brought up Israel out of Egypt... I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and out of the hand of them that oppressed you. And how did you pay me back? You turned your back. Ye have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay! but set a king over us. This is God's judgment. Your sin is aggravated. That's what he's saying. There are sins that are wicked in themselves. They're contrary to God's law. But when you set them in the context of what God has done for the person sinning, ah, it's much worse, isn't it? You've sinned against mercy. You've sinned against light. You've sinned against deliverance. And now you're going to pay the price, God says. I note then that sin is insanity. Sin is lunacy, darkness, blindness. Sin is insensible to our own best interests. You know why they wanted a king? To deliver them from their adversaries. Wait a second, time out. Had they ever been delivered from their adversaries before? 
Oh, and who did that? Who delivered them from all of their adversaries? You see how it makes no sense? It's completely and entirely 100% insanity. If we want to be blessed, if we want God's hand of mercy upon us, if we want God to approve of the things we do, should we be wicked and sinful and disobedient and think, well, now by my sins, I'm going to have all the things that, you know, God used to give to me. I don't want them anymore. I want this. Is that going to work? So it's not even in our own best interest to be wicked and sinful. And yet here they are. Let us not sin against the privileges that God has given us, against the light that he's enlightened us with, the mercies that he's shown to us. Let us be sensible to our own best interests, which Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that the Gentiles seek, they'll all be added to you. Well, let me just seek my own kingdom. Let me seek my own righteousness. You think those things are going to be added to you? No, of course not. The lot is cast, comes down to the family of Matri, and then Saul is taken, verses 19 through 21. Saul is nowhere to be, uh, to be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, verse 22. Samuel is praying without ceasing. He takes the helm of spiritual government on that occasion. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff, the baggage, the luggage, the utensils for cooking. That's how this Hebrew word is used. There he is, hiding in a suitcase, back in the kitchen. Matthew Henry notes the following, So little fond was he now of that power which yet when he was in possession of, he could not without the utmost indignation think of parting with. Right now he won't take the helm. What about when David comes along and he realizes this one's going to be king? What does he say about the power? Give it to me. I'm not letting, it, not letting go. I will not give this up. What does he say right now? I don't want the power. I'm going to go hide in the luggage. Back and forth the pendulum swings. Too much modesty and humility, too much pride and haughtiness. You see, they're both related to each other. Let us beware of untried virtues, of present accomplishments. Let us rest in the promise of God, submit to his commandments, confess and forsake our sins, and do not trust in our own hearts. Proverbs 28, 26. He that trusteth in his own heart is a, what? Wise person, good Christian, virtuous, lovely fool is what the Bible says. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. Saul stands head and shoulders above the rest, verse 23. And the people, when they hear of his coronation and his election, what do they do? Do they say, wait a second, let's look back at Genesis. In Genesis, it says that Benjamin is a ravening wolf, right? That's what Jacob said on his deathbed. What did he say about, oh, I don't know, Judah? Judah is a lion's whelp. 
What does the lion do as respects the wolf? Who's king of the jungle? Who rules the animals? The lion does. What does the ravening wolf do? He bites a little bit and kills and destroys at night. He goes and seeks his prey. Does he rule over the jungle? Does he rule over the kingdom? No. So everyone should have recognized, why do we have a king from Benjamin again? Is this God's doing? Is this what God prophesied through our father Jacob? No. They get caught up in the moment. Oh, this is so great. Ra, ra, sisk, boom, ba. You got to be patriotic. Yes. God save the king. No, God's going to destroy your king because you made it up and he gave you a king in your anger and he's going to take him away in his wrath. So Samuel reminds the people. See, Samuel's level-headed. He told the people the manner of the kingdom. Now, some people believe that Samuel is laying up Deuteronomy 17, which is already there before the Lord. But the manner of the kingdom is the mishpat, the custom of your king. Do you remember chapter 8? That is the mishpat of their king. He's going to overtax you. He's going to steal your lands. He's going to steal your children. He's going to take more than a tithe and you'll be his slaves. And when you cry out to me and say, God, save us from our king, I'm going to say what? No, you can have what you want. I gave you the mishpat. You have the custom of your king. He takes it and writes it down in a book and sets it there before the ark of God. No, now you can see the manner of your king. Here is your customary king. I believe that this is 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18, set before God. Who will do what? He will judge. God will see. God knows. God will take care of this matter. Verses 26 and 27, then we have Saul's return home again and the twofold response to his anointing. Some men, God's hearts, had been touched by him. Now, when you hear of God touching somebody's heart, Don't think of kittens and bouquets and little boxes of flowers. Oh, isn't that cute? He touched their hearts. No. That means God reached through and changed their minds and their wills so that they said, this is my king. Saul Saul is my king. Samuel has appointed him. The people have elected him. He is lawfully put into office. That's what it means. In fact, the word touch means to overthrow to overthrow their hearts and subdue them to himself so that they accept the providence of God and his judgment. But notice, there are others called the children of Belial, the satanic rabble, the worthless sons of Beelzebub, rebellious. They will not submit themselves to the ordinance of God, whether in church, that is Samuel, or in state, that is Saul. They will not listen. They will not follow. They will not obey. They are children of Belial. How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presence. Now think of David. David has the opportunity to become king by killing this man. Does he do it? Why not? Well, he's not a son of Belial, that's why. He recognizes, okay, this king is wicked and evil and imperfect, and he prays to God to destroy him, but when he's given the chance to kill him, does he do it? No. He is a man of honor, 
of decency and respect, and these sons of Belial have none of the above. They despise this man. They bring him no presence. Their heart has no reverence. Their hand has no gift. No fifth commandment internally. No fifth commandment externally. Take warning. Perpetual violations of the fifth commandment, either in heart or behavior, that is a mark of the black chain of reprobation. If we will not submit and honor even imperfect authorities, we're on our way to hell, not on our way to heaven. But notice his response. But he held his peace. Again, he is exemplary in this matter. He is humble and will not avenge himself, but as we shall see, this is a very flimsy shell which the pressures of government will crack and destroy in his descent into demonic worship. And thus far, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10.